Hello again, everybody. Great to see you again. Welcome to Club 46, driven by Bridgestone. I'm Jay Crawford. Thrilled to be joined for this week's installment by Joe Thomas, one of the all-time great Cleveland Browns, one of the all-time great offensive linemen ever to play. Joe, great to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jay. It's really exciting to be on the vaunted Club 46. <laughs> well, we're thrilled to have you. We, I'll tell you, it, it's going to take a little while because we want to start from the very beginning. We want to go back to the early days. What was a young Joe Thomas like? We also want to hear some of your Brown stories. I'm sure you have many, and we'll get into all of that. And before we start at the beginning, I always like asking guys to explain one of their favorite stories um, during their time playing for the Cleveland Browns. And I'm sure you got a million of them. But is there? Do you have a go-to Cleveland Brown story? Man, eleven years. Uh... Ten of those losing seasons, you know, you become very self-deprecating about your own career. And uh, a lot of the fun stories that I like to tell my buddies usually don't have a happy ending. <laughs> so I'm trying to think, is there a good one that maybe has a better happy ending for Club 46? Uh, <laughs> a lot of the stories that, that I love are, are just sort of uh, the tragic comedy types, especially early on when we had so many different coaches and we were trying so hard to figure it out every two years, sometimes one year with Rob Chudzinski, and we'd get turnover. But um, we had a lot of characters in the building, and so a lot of it is personality-driven. When you think about all the coaches and the players that I got a chance to play with and uh, a lot of the, the funny things that happen on a daily basis when you're kind of struggling through a season. One of my favorites that I've heard you tell is when you actually had to introduce yourself to a quarterback yes. in a real game. Yes. For yes. those that haven't heard that story, yeah. it's so funny. Yeah, so that's one of my favorite stories. Uh, not a happy ending, of course, <laughs> um, but we're playing in Pittsburgh. It's the last game of the season. I think it's maybe 2012 or something. And we had already gone through two or three quarterbacks coming up to this last game. And so we signed uh, a couple guys before the game started. And they showed up like Wednesday, Thursday of that week to try to learn the offense. Um, so Thad Lewis was actually the starting quarterback going into the game. Many of you remember Thad Lewis, of course, as the great Browns quarterback for probably one or two games. Um, <laughs> but his backup was a guy named Josh Johnson, and he had just been there maybe two or three days. No practice reps or anything because they were trying to get, give Thad all the reps that they possibly could because he was the starter, and he'd only been there a week, maybe two weeks. Um, and so we're playing in Pittsburgh. My left guard was injured. And so Ryan Miller was my left guard, who was the backup. Um, and he didn't get the line call. It's fourth quarter. We're driving into the Heinz Field red zone, which is going towards the river, if you've been in that stadium. And my left guard doesn't get the call. So he doesn't understand we're sliding to the left in the pass protection. So I slide, and I take the widest rusher, the second widest rusher, slants to my inside, but my guard's not there because he didn't get the call. And this defensive lineman, I think it was Brett Kiesel, goes and decapitates the poor Thad Lewis <laughs> in the backfield. And so Thad's laying on the ground, and Ryan's looking at me like, oh, crap, did I miss the call? And I'm like, what do you think? Your guy is laying on top of the quarterback who's dead. And so they bring the trainers out. They take Thad off the field. But as you know, even if you're not seriously injured as a player, if the trainers come out, you have to go out for a play. Mm -hmm. Um, so 
here comes a quarterback from the sideline to replace Thad, and he's trotting out. And I realize at that point that I don't know what his name is. And so he gets into the huddle, and it's it's third down, and we're right on the edge of field goal range. And actually, we're playing okay in the game, and so things are sort of close. We know that if we can score in this drive, we, we're within one score because it's a two-score game right now. And so we're, this is actually kind of an important moment all of a sudden. Like, if we convert this third down, we're in field goal range, we can cut it to one score and maybe have a chance. Well, he gets into the huddle, and I say, whoa, whoa, hang on. Before we start, I'd just like to introduce myself. My name's Joe Thomas, and I'm your left tackle. And he's like, you know, you can tell he's flustered because he's just trying to remember what the play is. And he's like, okay, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. And he's just trying to focus on the play. Of course, we didn't get the third down conversion. No. And uh, he ended up leaving the game, and the next drive, Thad came back in because he was okay, thankfully. But, uh, yeah, that was one of the funny stories that people like to hear from my uh, tragic comedy of a career. That had to be one of the more surreal moments of your NFL career. Um, but it almost sort of encapsulates your time in Cleveland because that position was such a revolving door for you. Describe the frustration or whatever it was you were feeling about that rotating door mm -hmm. at that position. Yeah, everybody knows quarterback's the most important position on the football field. Uh, it's the most valuable position on a team because the success of that position determines the success of everybody else. As a quarterback, you're the one that calls the play in the huddle. You're the one that gets everybody lined up. You're the one that makes sure the offensive line is blocking the right guys, run and pass a lot of times. You're the guy that's IDing the defense. You're changing the play when it needs to. But you're also the leader. And as a leader, you need to be one of the better players on the team. But you need to be the one that's setting the standard in the meetings uh, on the practice field outside of the building when you're doing the right things at home. But when you also have that turnover constantly at that position, it's difficult because all of us lemmings on the team that are looking to that leadership position at the quarterback are saying, man, who is the, the voice? Like you want one voice to be able to talk to the whole team consistently and, and not having that consistency is really hard to build a culture and it's really hard to change a culture, especially when you've had a long string of losing like we did here in Cleveland. Yeah. Did you ever imagine during your career what it would be like to have the consistency at that position? Throughout <laughs> your career, New England had one guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it didn't take uh, a, a binoculars to see down the road in Indianapolis to start my career. They had Peyton Manning, who'd been there forever. You know, I looked at Green Bay. They had Aaron Rodgers for a long time. Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, Ben Roethlisberger. Uh, even Joe Flacco was there for a long time. Yeah. Uh, Andy Dalton. I mean, our division was loaded with good quarterbacks that had been there a long time. And then you mentioned the ultimate example, Tom Brady, right, in New England, who'd been there, what, 20 years? And same offense, same coaching staff. Yeah. And so they learned the details and the nuance of not only the offense and the defense, but how coaches want them to do things when you have that consistency. Yeah. So there was, there was definitely a lot of jealousy there. <laughs> we'll come back to your Browns days, but now I want to go back to the early days of Joe Thomas growing up in Wisconsin. What was it like for you as a young guy? Yeah. It was great. I mean, I, I loved all sorts of sports growing up. Um, I didn't watch a ton on TV because I was outside playing them, right? right? Baseball, basketball, football. Uh, a little bit of soccer when I was younger, track and field. I mean, I just wanted to be outside doing 
any type of sport that I possibly could. And if I wasn't playing a sport, I wanted to be fishing. So for <laughs> me, everything in my life happened outside. Yeah. So you weren't really a big sit down and watch the Packers guy. Did you have favorite teams? I was. Um, I watched the Packers every Sunday with my dad. Yeah. Like the routine was after church, you get home, mom would make chili, uh -huh. and we'd watch the Packers because they were always on at noon sure. uh, in Central Time. But I listened to the Brewers on the radio, and I listened to the Bucks on the radio like, uh, at night, I had a little Walkman I would put in my ear when I was supposed to be sleeping, and then I'd always fall asleep with them on. Um, but as far as, like, watching on TV, a lot of times the only thing we really watched was the Packers, and then outside of that, during the week, yeah. I was outside. But um, I, I loved doing the sports even more than watching them. I was an active kid. I had a lot of uh, energy, my mom said. <laughs> How old were you when you realized, I'm, I'm different from all the other kids? Well, I always knew that I was different because I kept hurting my friends when we'd play tackle football. <laughs> uh, my poor next-door neighbor, his name was Nick Hamill, and I think every time we played, his mom had to take him to the hospital when I was done. I broke his collarbone. I broke his fingers. Uh, I gave him a concussion. And how old was that? We were seven or eight. <laughs> You know, and it was always different sports. Like we were playing hockey, I broke his finger. We were playing backyard football, I broke his collarbone. We were playing football. We were doing like the little turkey bowl, and I pushed him into a tree. I mean, come on, I, I don't know how you get hurt. It was like a six foot across willow tree, and he hit his head right on it and had like a lump like that. So you realized early. So I realized like I was bigger than people pretty early, and I could keep up with them athletically, uh, but I don't think it really clicked until I was in middle school and I was playing basketball and one of my teammates' dads had played college football. And he said to me, hey, if you keep growing at this rate, I think you might be good enough to play college football because of how big you are and how well you move. And I was blown away by that. Like it never right. had crossed my mind that this was maybe something that I could do in college, much less at the NFL level. Right, your dad was a good athlete, right? Yeah, he was a good athlete, but he never went on and played in college and so, um, there was always encouragement from them, and I knew my dad was a big guy. He was 6'2", 225, and he played cornerback and tight end in high school. So I knew he was a good athlete, um, but I also was always wondered, like, oh, why didn't you play at, at, in college? Um, I mean, he went to a smaller school in Wisconsin. He went to Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Um, but I, I think he was just really driven by the academic side of stuff, and, yeah. you know. So did you do all, like, baseball, basketball, football, hockey? Were you that I was never guy a that would go sport guy. to sport? You know, my mom was always like, the hockey gear, it's too expensive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which I totally understand now because my son's just about at that age where they're starting to play hockey in Wisconsin. Yeah. And, and you buy it new every year. Every year. And like, the big bag's like 200 bucks. <laughs> sure. And everything. And so I totally get it. And they're, you know, it's travel teams. That are, you're going up to Minnesota. You're going up to northern Wisconsin. So it's a big commitment. My mom was more into, like, the basketball. All right. Here's the ball. There you go, kid. Yeah. Uh, football, we get the rental stuff from the program every year, <laughs> right. so you don't have to buy you the helmet. Buy it. You don't have to buy anything but, like, the mouth guard yeah. and the cleats. Um, but, yeah, I, I, was, I was in baseball until I was, like, 12 or 13, mm -hmm. soccer. Started playing football after I quit soccer when I was 12. Um, so football was not your first love then? I always loved it, but in my town, you couldn't play football till fifth grade, and my mom didn't want me to play until seventh grade. She was like, you know, don't, this doesn't want me to get hurt, which is kind of funny because yeah. I never got hurt. <laughs> you were hurting other kids. I was the one doing the hurting, so maybe she was feeling bad for my friends. Do you agree with that, waiting until later to play football? What, what's the, so, the, the right age? Yeah, I, I think right now, the, as the studies are coming out, I think it's great to get kids involved with 
flag football really early, get them involved, but then maybe wait a little bit longer on tackle football. Um, I, I think when I grew up, fifth grade was when you could start playing tackle, but mm -hmm. maybe waiting till seventh grade like I did, or maybe even waiting till high school. I don't think it would hurt kids' development. I think it would recruit more kids to the sport, get them more interested if you had that flag option, especially early on. Mm -hmm. And I, it sounds like waiting is better for brain health and things like that. Right. Um, so I'm, it's something I'm definitely going to continue to watch and mm -hmm. see where that research and where that's, those studies um, keep coming in. And, and certainly when my son gets to be that age, um, that'll be kind of the, the conversation we have. But yeah. I'm, I'm definitely a big believer in all the benefits that football and tackle football bring specifically. You had mentioned a couple of years ago that you were starting to experience some short-term memory loss. Mm -hmm. It's been a few years. Yeah. Um, and it's almost impossible for anyone to know in the moment why. Yeah. But have you developed any other hypothesis? Do you think it's football related? And will that weigh into your decision as to whether or not you encourage mm -hmm. or discourage mm -hmm. your own son mm -hmm. from following in your footsteps? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the hard thing about um, short-term memory loss is that there are no double-blind studies on yourself. Because <laughs> yeah. that's really the only way you would know what could be causing you to forget your keys or walk into a room and forget why you walked into that room? Um, could it be just, that's your DNA. Like my mom, she's forgetful. She can't remember anybody's names. Like she never played a down of football in her life. <laughs> that's just, you know, my DNA maybe. Or could it be just, I got a lot of stuff going on. I got four kids. I got the balance of the Cleveland Browns, the NFL network, my social life, my family life. Like, the, the family stuff, like there's a lot of things going on that's in your brain constantly that you're thinking about. Um, could it be the football? Like obviously 11 years in the NFL and four years in college, that takes a toll on your body and those hits on your brain are cumulative and certainly that has to have some effect, but how do you give a certain percentage to this and that? It's hard to say. So yeah. I think from my perspective, I'm just kind of saying like I'm going to monitor it and as new information and new studies and new science comes out, I'm gonna be open-minded to it. But the best things that I can do for myself is stay active, continue to try to use my brain as much as possible, mm -hmm. um, try to remember people's names and remember things <laughs> and focus on that type of stuff, make sure. it important. Yeah. Um, and then try to eat a good diet, try not to get hit in the head anymore. <laughs> like those are the things that I can control and so I wanna focus on that, but not, also not worry about what I can't control. Has that gotten any worse over the last couple of years, or has it been about um, the same? It feels like it's it's been about the same. Yeah. Um, but it's just something I'm going to have to pay attention to and kind of see where it goes, and and hopefully that it, it doesn't get worse. Yeah. Uh, but if it does, then try to seek help in any way you can. Bridgestone knows you want the same thing from your tires as you do from the Cleveland Browns clutch performance when it matters most. So when unpredictable weather strikes, Bridgestone Taranza tires don't just handle wet conditions, they're built for them. They deliver with the unfazed confidence and quiet control of a clutch performer and make it look easy. Bridgestone, the official tire of the NFL. So you're playing all sports. You're introduced to football a little later because mm -hmm. you had to wait. When you first start playing football, how long did it take you before you knew, okay, this is it. This yeah. is what I want to do. Yeah. So playing in seventh and eighth grade, we were on a really good team. We won the championship both years. We were undefeated. I had uh, two of my buddies who are my best friends still to this day. 
they played at Wisconsin with me. So we had three Division wow. One players on our seventh and eighth grade team. At that time, we didn't know it, of course. But <laughs> yeah, you better be good. Yeah. So um, I knew I was pretty good because I played fullback and tight end, and you kind of play some of the other positions too. But sure. when I would get the ball, nobody could tackle me. And then the parents on the other team were complaining that I was over the weight limit. Because in seventh grade, you had to be under 140 pounds to carry the ball. And I was 139 pounds at like 6'2". <laughs> so you can imagine I was just string bean. Did but you have to work to be at 139 no, or were you naturally no, no, 139? I, I was just a skinny kid. Okay. So it was no problem. But I was under the weight limit. And so I, the commissioner actually came in the middle of the season and took me to a scale and weighed me <laughs> to prove to all the parents in the conference that, yes, he looks really big and nobody can tackle him, but he is under the weight limit. Yeah. Uh, and so I knew that I was maybe better and stronger than kids in seventh and eighth grade, but I had no idea how that would translate. I think the big, um, I think the first big recognition that I could be a good football player happened when I was a freshman because when we went out for our freshman football team, they moved me up to varsity. Wow. And I was one of the first kids in my school's history to play varsity football as a freshman, and I started a couple games uh, at outside linebacker. And so it was at that point I was like, okay, I'm probably better than my peers. I don't know how long this is going to last, but certainly being a freshman playing varsity felt pretty good for a 14-year-old. At what point did you see Barry Alvarez at your game for the first time? Yeah, so it it was (laughs) funny. So my junior year is when things started to heat up. That's when coaches started coming from all over the country. I mean, we had coaches from Miami and USC and Notre Dame and Wisconsin. And by now you're how big? Um, I was like 6'7", 245. So I I was pretty tall. My my freshman year is really when I stopped growing height-wise. I was 6'7", 220. And then I just kind of slowly added some weight throughout my high school days. Um, And so by my junior year, I was getting a lot of scholarship offers, so I knew that, you know, I was going to be able to play at the next level, and it was just a matter of kind of deciding where, which was exciting. Was there ever anybody that really had a chance other than Barry in Wisconsin? There was, and actually, at the beginning beginning of the process, I was very open to going anywhere. Yeah. Um, I kind of had the grass is greener mindset a little bit at the beginning because I was a kid who grew up in Wisconsin. I didn't really travel outside of the state much. We hadn't taken vacations and gone all over the place. You know, we, we were kind of homebodies, I guess, a little bit. Um, the big vacations we did, we'd go camping up in northern Wisconsin or up into Michigan <laughs> sure. or Minnesota. Uh, and so for me, it was kind of like college was going to be my chance to get away and, mm. and see a different part of the country. Um, but it was funny because then when I started to go visit a lot of these places, I visited Colorado, Nebraska, Virginia Tech, Notre Dame, All of a sudden, I started getting that feeling of like, wow, now I know why I love the things that I see every day at Wisconsin so much. And when I visited the campus, I I really fell in love with everything that Madison had to offer. The two lakes right there on campus, the awesome downtown area with the great social life and the great academic and the passionate sports fans, the great football program that develops offensive linemen, a lot of homegrown blue-collar walk-on guys that they develop into NFL players at all positions. But, um, you know, it was I think it was, it was that finally learning a lot about what Wisconsin was mm-hmm. more than just, hey, it's a football team I, I like to cheer for. Yeah. Made me realize that this is the place for me. Did you take other visits? 
Yeah, so I, I visited a, a lot of other schools. I think I took all five of my visits, Notre Dame, Nebraska, Colorado, Virginia Tech, uh, Wisconsin. I think I even took a visit to Kansas for track and field because I'd, I'd been getting recruited for track and right. field also. Um, so I was looking at, you know, doing two sports. And, yeah, it was getting out made me realize how much I loved being home. If you hadn't picked Wisconsin, where would have you gone So to my final two were Notre Dame and Wisconsin. Oh. Um, the academic at that point was really important to me. Uh, not that it wasn't once I got to school, but sure. once I realized that football was going to be my job, then the focus became football instead of right. academics. But at that point, when I was a senior in high school, I was looking at it as, hey, I can have somebody pay for my education by playing football. Let's do it and then get the best education I can so that I can use that and go on and into the working world. And so Notre Dame's got uh, um, a very well-known connection within Notre Dame alumni. They've got a great business school, which is what I wanted to study. Mm -hmm. um, obviously great academics and a great football program with right. a lot of history. And it was right down the road, so my parents and grandparents and family could come and watch me play. Um, but I think when I looked at the totality of everything that Notre Dame offered to Wisconsin, like having a big school with a social life was important for my college experience, and Notre <laughs> Dame just didn't offer that. <laughs> yeah, Wisconsin has the and edge Wisconsin there for sure. Yes. Uh, if there was ever a match made in Connection Heaven, I really yeah. think it's Joe Thomas and Wisconsin. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Do you think that, you know, that would you be a different person today had you gone to Notre Dame or had you gone to I a think so, school? and I, I think about that occasionally. <laughs> I wonder if I hadn't gone to Wisconsin, would they have developed me into an offensive lineman that played in the NFL? Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of those other programs, they don't have the coaching, they don't have the offensive system, and they don't have the development, the full development for high school kids to churn out offensive linemen that go to the NFL. Wisconsin is so good because they have excellent coaching. They run a pro-style offense. They work you really, really hard. They feed you really, really well. <laughs> so, and I was a kid that needed to add weight. I was 250 when I came into college. Um, and they have a, a weight room program that pushes you and puts muscle on you. And there's not a lot of programs across the country that do that. And, and you can see it in the results at Wisconsin where every year they've got offensive linemen being drafted. And when you look back to their high school tape, they were one or two star recruits. They weren't the top guys, yeah. but the school developed some because of all those things that I mentioned. And so I wonder, you know, if I would, if I didn't benefit from that development and that uh, cocoon that you, they put around you mm -hmm. and they build you in an offensive lineman, I wonder would I have had the same amount of success? Yeah, it's interesting. Was it Brookfield Central? Yes. You were a kicker too. I did it all. Yeah. I got to know yeah. what is Joe Thomas's <laughs> extreme range on field yes, goals. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so it, it was funny. Like my high school is really well known for soccer. Mm -hmm. So we have a pretty big population at Brookfield Central. There was like 1,200 students. So it wasn't a small school, but the male population was heavily split among the sports. And so our football team, varsity-wise, only had like 25 kids. Wow. So it wasn't a huge team for being a bigger school uh, and so everybody except the quarterback played both sides of the ball so I played tight end tackle defensive <laughs> end outside linebacker but I was also the punter and I was the kicker because oh well, nobody else could do it right. but I was actually a pretty good punter um, I was a much better punter than I was kicker yeah I could boot him about 
40, 45 yards would be like the max range on a field goal. Right. But it was a lot like my driver off the tee box. It <laughs> could go anywhere. It's just as likely to go 300 yards, of but out of bounds. Yes, yeah. exactly. And I was a toe bomber. So I was, I was pretty Wait, you straight on? Straight on. Like Don Cockroft style. Yeah, boom, just like that. Wow. So I, I, I was better at kickoffs than field goals because kickoffs, you had a, a much <laughs> bigger target than you did when you were trying to kick field goals. Now, did you ever tell any of your coaches at Wisconsin that I can be the backup kicker if anything happens? Yes. No, it was funny. Uh, they were never interested in my kicking after <laughs> I they saw me kick why. once. But I was the backup punter on a, a couple occasions. Really? Uh, because I actually was a pretty decent punter. And there was actually a couple times in Cleveland when Chris Tabor was the special teams coach because in the NFL you only carry one punter right. on the roster. Yeah. And sometimes the kicker is not a great punter or the kicker gets like dinged up a little bit. And so the punter's already doing both roles. And then I was always the backup <laughs> emergency punter. <laughs> Did and, you practice it at uh, all? I didn't really practice it, but to prove I could do it, because I always told Tabes, I said, hey, Tabes, if you need the punter, I'm your guy. He was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'm like, dude, I was All-State in high school. I'm your guy. Were you an All-State punter? I, I punted in the uh, the Shrine game, which is our wow. All-Star game. I was like a 40-yard average guy, so I, I could That's kick phenomenal. it up there. Yeah. But the one thing that I had in my advantage was you couldn't snap it over my head. So that, <laughs> yeah, I think right. that was why they wanted me back there because I was like a goalie. You couldn't snap it over my head, and if it went low and they and I picked it up and they tried to tackle me, I was going to give them a stiff arm and still get the ball off. Uh, so that was my best attribute as a punter. But I went in the field house and on, on the field a couple of days after practice when James yeah. was here just to prove I could punt. And he was like, hey, you're actually not too bad. <laughs> so uh, I was the backup punter. That's my claim to fame. Did you hope that I did. one time like, I want to get in there? I totally did. I wanted, <laughs> you know, like a lot of people have that fantasy, like, oh, they're going to call your number. Nobody's going to know you could do it. Right. You go out there and you're going to boom like a 50-yarder <laughs> over the punt returner's head. Uh, unfortunately, it never, never happened. happened. But no. I can imagine myself if it actually happened, how nervous I would be when I got back there that I would drop it or just totally shank it, and I probably would have. And then that would have been worse than if I never even had the opportunity. Your body's completely different now. <laughs> if you were to go out to a field right now, no practice, stretch a little bit, mm -hmm. kick a ball, well, how far do you think you could punt it? I think easily I could make, make a 40-yard punt. Really? Like 40 yard net, right? So, so from the line, so, so so 15 plus 40. So, so you're 55. talking 55 in yeah. the air. Oh yeah, no problem. Yeah. Wow. I, I was a pretty decent punter, and I think now that I'm not as heavy, I have a little more range of motion, flexibility. more flexibility. <laughs> I think I could probably even punt it a little bit further. It's pretty good. My dad was a punter in high school, and so we used to take the ball out when we were kids. And we'd kick it back and forth. We'd punt it back and yeah. forth. And so that's kind of how I learned to be the punter. And I was mm. always the punter on our teams growing up. And so I think part of it is like that nostalgia of me and my dad in the back, punting the ball back to each other. I've, I've kind of hung on to that yeah. a little bit. So you decide that Wisconsin is the place for you. What was it like when you stepped on the field for the first day of practice under Barry Alvarez and you're no longer this man among boys in high school, you're now playing against grown men. Mm -hmm. what, what was that like? And did you ever have any moments of, can I do this? Mm -hmm. So when you start training camp at Wisconsin and you're just a freshman, they're mostly just putting you against freshmen when you're doing the one-on-one -on -one drills and stuff. Cause they want to see how you match up against their other recruits. Right. And we had a guy named uh, Jamal Cooper. He was a highly ranked defensive end from the St. Louis area. And so him and I would go against each other. And like the first, two or three practices. I locked them down pretty good in one-on-one -on -one pass rush. And after that, 
our offensive line coach was Jim Huber. He pulled me aside after the practice and said, hey, we think you have a chance to be pretty good. We're going to kind of start moving you up the depth chart to just kind of see if you can hang with some of these older boys, right? Right. And so they put me as the second string tackle, and I started taking some pass rushes against the juniors and then eventually the seniors, and I was holding my own. And it was at that point when I kind of realized, like, hey, I've only been here four days. I've had hardly any coaching, but I'm already locking down some of these guys that have been here three, four years that are way bigger than myself because yeah. I was only – <laughs> 265 at that point playing left tackle wow. and so they were still trying to gain weight on me and I knew I wasn't ready to start right away because I was just so much smaller and I didn't right. I didn't know the offense I didn't know the technique or anything but I knew like <laughs> athletically and from like a physical standpoint I could hang with those guys so then I played that entire training camp as the second string tackle and then the the plan was during that season was if there was an injury at either tackle position then I'd be the starter but to get me some game experience, they wanted me to play jumbo tight end in short yardage. Right. And so I was the first <laughs> freshman to play for Barry Alvarez, the first wow. true freshman to play on the offensive line for Barry Alvarez because there was a couple games that we were up significantly that they put me in there to get me some reps. And then yeah. I played in every game as the extra tight end. Um, so it was really awesome getting that experience, and it felt cool kind of breaking the glass ceiling for true freshman offensive linemen to play with Barry because he'd had so many great offensive linemen, oh. but the tradition was always just to redshirt those guys. So I think at that point I, I realized, like, okay, I think I can do this. I belong, and I think I might be able to be a good college player. Did you already in your mind know that Joe Thomas is going to play in the NFL one day? And if you didn't at that point – when did that seed get planted that this is definitely going mm -hmm. to happen? So that took a lot longer because I guess I've always had self-doubt. And I talk to a lot of players, especially offensive linemen, that have had great careers. And it's funny, they say that they have that imposter syndrome just the same way I did. Like mm -hmm. every day when I was in college, I thought I was going to wake up and I was just going to get my butt kicked. And people were going to be like, oh, See, we knew he was crappy. <laughs> Even though everyone said he was going to be a good player, we knew he sucks. Um, and so my junior year, I started seeing scouts coming to practice. But scouts are always kind of coming to practice. But I noticed they were watching me a little bit more. Uh, and my offensive line coach, Jim Huber, at the time, he would say, like, hey, the Packers are here. They're just watching you. And things like that, you know, make you feel really good, especially for a kid growing up in Wisconsin. Sure. Grew up a Packer fan. Um, it's exciting. Like at that point, I still didn't think I had what it takes to play in the NFL. Um, but at the end of that season, you have an opportunity to petition the NFL draft board or something like that. Yeah. And they'll give you an idea of, hey, this is what your draft grade is. Yeah. Uh, so you can determine if you want to come out after your junior year. And when my coach said, hey, I, my my uh, offensive line coach said hey, I think you should petition the board just to see where you're at. I was like, wait, what? Like to go out to the draft? And he's like, yeah. He's like, a lot of these scouts that are coming in are saying that you're going to be a first-round draft pick. And I was like, what? And it's weird to hear that from your coach. I know, from my coach. I'm like, you're the one that's supposed to not tell me this stuff and tell me to just stay in school. But the transparency was, the had transparency to be awesome for awesome. you. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and I appreciated that, and I think I ended up tearing my ACL <laughs> in the bowl game that mm -hmm. year. And so the decision was easier, but um, having the feeling that there was transparency and that my coaches were looking out for my own best interest, not just their best interest. 
really gave me comfort of coming back to play my senior season, knowing that these people aren't in it just for them. Like they're in it for me just as much. Yeah. Um, and so when I petitioned the draft board, they came back with uh, a first round grade and they said that I'd be the second tackle or second offensive lineman taken probably in the top five. And I was like, whew, I guess I really might be able to do this thing for a living. Man. And so it was that point where it, it hit me. But really, honestly, even through my junior season, I was really just focused on being a student and being a football player and just trying to be the best left tackle. And like I said, it was that imposter syndrome where I, did, I, I thought I was good enough to play, but I didn't think I was anywhere near good enough to play in the NFL. And I knew growing up, my parents had you know beat it into my head, like no kid plays pro sports. It's one in a million, you don't have a chance. So focus on your, your studies, focus on your schoolwork. Smart parents. Yeah. Bridgestone knows you want the same thing from your tires as you do from the Cleveland Browns clutch performance when it matters most and when you need maximum grip for confident cornering Bridgestone Potenza tires aren't just up for the job they're built for the job with the tread design engineered for any twist and turn the road may throw your way Bridgestone official tire of the NFL Joe you said that you had this imposter syndrome as you call yeah. it what role do you think that self-doubt played in ultimately making you the player that you became? I think it plays a big role because every day you go in and you work as hard as you possibly can so that you're not uncovered as this imposter. <laughs> and I think that drive, even to this day, it, it really is a big part of who I am because I wake up feeling like I'm behind the pack and I need to catch up, yeah. right? And that was the feeling that I had when I was in the weight room. Like, I'm just this skinny 220 pound kid from high school. I need to lift really hard and to gain that weight in order to be able to keep up with these monsters physically, yeah. right? And it was the same thing on the field. Like, man, people think I'm good, but I know I'm not really good. So I need to work extra hard to make sure I don't make any mistakes where they can point <laughs> to that mistake and say, see, we told you, he yeah. does suck, right? And so it was like that uh, perfectionist attitude that like striving for perfection to, in my own mind, keep people away from seeing my own flaws. It was, it was kind of a weird thing, and I, I, it made for a lot of stress during my career, um, but it really it drove me to be perfect. Yeah. And I think as an offensive lineman, we're only as good as the number of mistakes we make. Uh, and so making the fewest amount of mistakes makes you the best player, not making the best plays making you the best player. And so for me... I think that was a huge part of my success as an offensive lineman. Yeah. Where do you think that, that fear of failure comes from genetically? Is mom yeah. like that? Is dad like yeah. that? Are both like that? Yeah, they're both like that a little yeah. bit. My mom to this day still works as a nurse, and I think she wow. wakes up with that imposter syndrome. <laughs> like, I need to work. <laughs> like, mom, you're... I'm not going to tell her age, but you're, you're old enough. You can retire now. Yeah. Oh, got to go, got to work. You know, wow. that's kind of how my dad was too um, at his job. And so I think I got a lot of that from them. But mm -hmm. I, I think also too, the, just kind of the culture of being an offensive lineman, that's the mentality, you know, we, we tease that we're the mushrooms on the team, right? The mushrooms, <laughs> we're the guys that they, people throw in the dark corner, they throw poop on them and they expect them to grow into something <laughs> wonderful. And I think you kind of embrace that mentality as an offensive lineman. Like you don't want the limelight, you don't want the attention, you just want to go about your business and work and you're happy that nobody notices you because usually when you do get that spotlight, it's not for a good thing. It's, it's a penalty, it's a, sack. it's a sack, it's a TFL, yeah. right? So uh, I think a lot of it is a blend of all those things. Yeah. 
When, when you were at Wisconsin, because you had this athletic ability, you were also playing on the other side of the ball. If you had focused and tailored your body to be J.J. Watt, what kind of career do you think you could have had as yeah. a defensive lineman? I think I could have played in the NFL because I was a good enough athlete. I ran a 4.7240 coming out of high school. So I was fast um, and I was pretty quick. And I was really strong um, for my size, very, very powerful in my hips. So I could knock people off the ball. I could shed people like defensive linemen need to do. Um, and I had enough short area quickness where I could win pass rush moves. Um, but I don't think I would have been very good. I would have been sort of like practice squad, maybe solid backup. Because, and this goes back to when I was in college playing defensive line, I always beat my block, but I never had enough speed to accelerate and get the sack. Oh. I was the one step away guy. Like <laughs> right as the quarterback's throwing the ball, I'm one step away from yeah. getting the sack because I just didn't have that elite next level gear that great players in the NFL at the defensive line position have where they beat their block and then they can accelerate and still get the sack. Yeah. You had mentioned um, your ACL tear your junior year. You're playing Auburn. Capital One Capital Bowl. Capital One Bowl, yep. All right. Orlando, Florida. Um, and you're playing on the defensive side, I think, because of an injury. Um, what happened on the play, and what was the immediate thought you had mm -hmm. afterwards? Yeah, so I was playing both sides of the ball in that, that game. We had some injuries on the defensive line. Uh, my freshman year, I was playing jumbo tight end, backup tackle, and then we had injuries going into the bowl game. So they actually flipped me during the bowl prep. And I started as a defensive end for the team my freshman year. So fast forward to my junior year, I'd played pretty well my freshman year. And so the coaches said, hey, we got some space in this bowl game. We got a little more practice time to prepare so we can get you ready for offense and defense. What do you think about going both ways? You know, we're not going to make you play the entire game on both sides of the yeah. ball because you'd just be worn out. But we'll give you maybe 20 plays on defense, see if you can make a couple big disruptive plays, TFL, sacks, or whatever, yeah. um, and you know help us win. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. It was Barry Alvarez's last game as, mm -hmm. as a head coach, and I was all in for the team. And I thought it'd be fun, right? Be able to go out and be a high school kid again, run around sure. and tackle somebody, right? Uh, I always make fun of the defensive linemen that they're dumb because they don't have to learn anything. All they have to do is learn who has the football, and they tackle them. Yeah. And so for me, I, I thought it was a great opportunity to go out and have some fun and help my team win. And so it was only like my third or fourth play on defense, um, and I was on the back side of the play. It was a toss sweep away from us. I was playing left defensive end. So I stood my tackle up. I saw that they tossed it, and they were um, running away from me. So I shed him and I turned to pursue the ball to try to take an angle in case it was about an eight or 10 yard run to get it on the tackle. Well, as I took, turned and I took my angle and I started running to try to get it on the tackle, um, our safety or corner came down and forced the ball back. So the ball started to cut back across the field. So now I'm running like this and I'm taking an angle on a runner who's going like this. And now he starts to turn and cut pretty close to me, maybe just a couple yards away like he's gonna cross the field. And so what I did is as I'm running full speed, I put my foot out mm. into the ground and I planted and I was trying to turn to try to change my angle to get him in the tackle. And it's when I planted and I twisted that my knee just buckled. And then I took one more step and I just crumbled and fell to the ground. And I instantly knew that I had torn my ACL. At that point, I really didn't know a whole lot about it because I hadn't had 
a lot of injuries at that right. point in my career. And all I could think about was, you know, 15, 20 years ago is if you blow your knee out, like your career could be over because the medicine just wasn't there. And so as I'm laying on the field, it didn't really hit me yet. I knew I tore my ACL. They helped me off the field. At that point, I was still just focused on like, we're beating a team that we shouldn't right now. Yeah. It's Barry's last game. Let's get the win. So I just stayed on the sidelines. Like they would never let a guy that just tore his ACL just stay Not on the anymore. sidelines. Not anymore. Now, but yeah. I remember just sitting on that trainer's on, table. I, oh, you so you were just I was sitting. just like laying on the training t table with ice on my knee, just looking up and like trying to cheer the guys on wow. on the sideline. Uh, we ended up winning that game and then they gave me crutches and so I went in the locker room. And then when I got in the locker room, I met with the doctors, and that's when they said, hey, we think you tore your ACL. And it was at that point where it kind of, like, hit me. My parents came into the locker room, and I, like, started crying. The defensive line coach, who was honestly tougher than General Patton, like, he was the biggest jerk, great defensive line coach, but he was the biggest hard ass of all time. He comes storming into the trainer's uh, room where I'm sitting there and he just starts crying. He's like, wow. he's like, I am so sorry. We never should have put you out there. And I'm like, whoa, you're not a guy that I ever expected to see cry. So this must be a big deal. So I'm crying. My parents are crying. I'm like, wow. did I die? Like I really had that feeling like maybe I, I'm dead Yeah. Uh, because I just didn't know at that point. And, and the staff had known already that the NFL draft report came back saying I was probably going to be a top five. Did you know at that choice. point? Um, I think I did, because if I remember correctly, they told me before the game and then said, hey, we'll worry about it after the game, which yeah. is kind of my mentality. Um, and so I, I kind of knew, I did know already um, where I would have been taken in the draft. But I don't think even if I hadn't been hurt that I would have come out early. Because That's what I was going to ask. I, I loved Wisconsin. I loved going to school at Madison. I loved my friends, my teammates, my coaches. It was it was a dream, right? Mm -hmm. And the stress level was pretty low for a guy, especially going into my senior year. I kind of knew where I was going to get drafted so I could just focus and enjoy the season, my senior season at Wisconsin, try to do some great things as a team. We had a pretty good team coming back. Um, and so that's kind of where my mind was. But as soon as I heard I got injured, it, it took like two days before I snapped out of it. And then we set my surgery date. The doctors talked to me about how successful recoveries are these days and how they thought that I would still be back in time for the f beginning of the season next year if I rehab fast. Um, and then my mindset just became that single focus of, all right, just got to get ready for the next season and I'm going to be bigger and better than ever. What can I do right now this offseason while I'm rehabbing to make myself better that I wouldn't have been able to do wow. if I was hurt. And what was that? It was get in the weight room, get my upper body stronger because yeah. I wasn't really strong, couldn't use my legs because I was rehabbing that knee, but I could get my upper body stronger. So I started lifting like four days a week bench press, me and the strength coach. Yeah. And so I, I gained some weight. And so I tried to use the negative and flip it yeah. into a positive. I've talked to a lot of guys that have been in that exact position, knew their draft status, Yeah knew that they were looking at a fortune, millions if not tens of millions of dollars on the table, and they've had the, a very similar injury, either that injury or one that is also potentially career-ending. And they almost always, in the first couple of sentences talking about it, talk about the money mm -hmm. and the loss of money. Mm -hmm. You didn't even bring that up. Yeah, because I had never put that money in my pocket at that point. Like, I had never associated being a first-round draft pick or a top-five pick yet with the money I was going to make, it was just, oh, I get to continue my football career where all my other buddies 
at the end of their college careers, it's over. They're done. They're going to put sure. a suit and tie on the rest of their life. And I was like, hey, I get to keep. And you never thought about the flip money, flops, you know. <laughs> you never and, thought and, about that. And I, I hadn't. I, I obviously <laughs> knew that playing in the NFL is lucrative. Sure. But I had never yet placed that money in my pocket where if it got taken out, I would miss it, right? Because wow. it was never mine. Yeah. And, and so um, it made it easier to handle the injury and deal with it because I wasn't worried about down the line and that money. I knew just focusing on being a great teammate and being the best left tackle that I could be, that stuff would take care of itself yeah. down the line. That injury, even in 07, can come with a 12-month recovery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this happened New Year's Day, yeah. and you're back yep. in August. Yep, training camp. And, and at the time, I'm trying to think that that didn't that wasn't the case with most ACL yeah, injuries. M- most ACLs at that point were maybe like seven to nine months. Yeah, you know, I, I think they were at that point trying to find ways to accelerate the return to play timetable, mm-hmm. but they weren't really successful because they saw that if they get you there faster people had a lot of lingering issues longer than right. if they just were a bit more patient. And, and I don't know for sure right now, we'd have to ask the trainers, but I think the current thought is like, take your time, build your muscle back up because then the reoccurrence of ACL tears is lower. Cause that's the big thing is when you tear your ACL, you lose like your muscle mm-hmm. and it takes a long time to get the balance and the muscle back to where it needs to be to get the stability in the joint to protect all those ligaments. And so if you rush that back, you're going to be, playing potentially on a knee that's way less stable than the other knee and more likely to re-injure more likely to re-injure it yeah and so they take more patience now i think but at the time it was about six months and i was back full practice full pads tackling and i didn't feel great about it um were you it it was in in your mind in your head but also your knee doesn't feel all that great there's tons of soreness there's tons of swelling still you don't have the balance it's it's a weird injury to come back from because it's not like actually learning to walk again but for six weeks i was on crutches and i couldn't use my leg at all yeah. and then at that point like you you do kind of forget that normal cadence of walking and you kind of have to reteach yourself to do those things normally without thinking about it right because yeah. that's the big thing is when you first start walking again and you first start jogging and then you start playing all you can think about is that knee and every step you take because it just doesn't feel right yeah and you hear about atrophy but you really don't understand it's a real thing until you go through right. it. What was that like for you when you realized, you would look down at your leg, that's not my leg, yeah. played on it, this isn't my leg. At what point did you realize, okay, this is a real thing, these guys know what they're talking about, I have to make sure this mm-hmm. leg is 110% of what it used to be. Yeah, so after my surgery, it only took about a week and they were changing like the dressing and stuff and my right leg was like half the size of my left leg. <laughs> it happens only quick. A week, yeah. I couldn't believe how fast it happened because I figured, you know, if I just laid in bed for a week, my legs wouldn't look like that. So sure. I didn't understand why it happened so quickly, but it's something about the surgery and what the they trauma. do and the trauma and the yeah. knee and the swelling where those muscles just stop working. They stop functioning and your body just <laughs> absorbs them. And mm-hmm. so when you do try to get back to it, you don't have even 50% of the leg strength. And Lee Evans was a first round draft pick mm-hmm. from Wisconsin. He's a Bedford, Ohio kid. Yep. Um, he had torn his ACL like three or four years before. And he was sort of in the same situation where he tore his ACL in the spring game and tried to come back for that season, which would have been a really fast timetable. Um, but 
he ended up being a first round pick anyway. And so I talked to him a lot. He was really good as a resource to talk to about the rehab process. And that was the one thing he said. He said, get that quad back muscle wise. That is the most important thing because that is what helps with the joint stability. That's what's going to help get your speed back. That's what's going to help you feel normal. So yeah. do not slack on that rehab when they're making you do those quad exercises uh, a million at a time every single day because that is worth it. That's what you need to do. Was there a point in your senior season where you came off the field after a game or a practice and said, okay, it's, I'm back. It's 100%. So we were playing at Michigan. It was our first Big Ten game of the season. Um, and I was playing against Lamar Woodley, who mm -hmm. ended up being, I think, a second-round pick for the Steelers. Had a really good career yep. in the NFL. And he was an All-American in college. And in college, you really only have two or three games a year, even at a major university, where you're playing against an All-American type talent. Yeah. Right? In the NFL, every year there, <laughs> every week, every game. pro bowlers, right? But in college, you just don't see it that much. So I knew this was a big game for me from a – hey, how did he play against the best of the best competition-wise going into the NFL draft? Uh, it was a big game for our team, playing against Michigan that year. They were a really good squad. Um, and so I knew this was going to be a big measuring test for my knee to see, hey, how good is this knee? How healed and how healthy is it? Um, and so I ended up playing a really good game that week against Michigan, against Lamar Woodley. And during the game was the first time, and I think it was week three, it was the first time since I had torn my ACL where I didn't think about it during the game. I wow. just went out and played football. Yeah. And at the end of that, I said, okay, I'm back. It's yeah. healthy. So you lose one game that year, mm -hmm. and you end up going back to the Capital One yeah. Bowl. Yes. And there's no way in the world Joe Thomas isn't thinking on that entire plane ride, this is the scene of the crime. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there is no coming back for right. another year at Wisconsin. Yeah. This is my launching pad, my last launching mm -hmm. pad to my, my goal, my dream, my yeah. love. What was that process like for you getting ready to take that same field where yeah. you had torn your ACL one mm -hmm. year earlier? It, it was interesting, I think, um, because I thought about it a little bit, but at that point in the season, I had played a bunch of games on my knee, and it was feeling better every single week, mm -hmm. and I was feeling stronger every single week. Um, and so I didn't have a lot of apprehension going into that game, especially because I wasn't going to be playing defense. <laughs> so <laughs> I only had to focus on left tackle. Uh, we had a tough team, Arkansas, that we were playing. Mm -hmm. They had some really good defensive ends. And so my focus in my mind was play well against these guys. Everything takes care of itself. Don't yeah. have to worry about uh, anything. And so once the game was over, I had that <laughs> sigh of relief. Like, <laughs> I'm healthy. I'm fine. I can now focus on the NFL draft. Now, had you yet put that money into your pocket? Not at that point. You no, still not that hadn't point. let yourself so think about I was that. So I was really adamant about I want to focus on football during the football season. I'll hire an agent. I'll worry about NFL stuff after the bowl game. And so it wasn't until after the bowl game I interviewed agents, uh, ended up picking an agent. And then that's when you're with your agent and he gives you what is somewhat realistic of an idea of, hey, this is where you're going to get drafted. This is what those contracts look like. You'll probably want to hire a financial advisor to help like, with all those contract things and, and learning how to handle money that you didn't have any of when you were in college. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't until after that bowl game where I started kind of down that NFL, this is my career as a professional path. What's going through this humble kid from Wisconsin's mind when your agent is throwing eight-digit numbers at you? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm like, 
man, I can buy a lot of fishing boats with that money. <laughs> <laughs> that's what made Joe happy. Yeah, I'm like, wow, this, that's all I ever wanted was a fishing boat, so I'm good. Is that enough to buy one boat? Yeah, right. Can I get that rowboat I always wanted? Maybe the, the 25 horsepower motor on the back? I saw an interview once with you, and it made me laugh because anybody who comes from that kind of background kind of carries that with them through life. But you, you said that when you became a professional, you still, your inclination was still to go to Walmart to buy furniture. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, at what point did that change? Has it changed yeah. for you? Uh, my wife has made a change a little bit. Uh, so <laughs> I got married right before my rookie season. And she's from Wisconsin she's as well, from right? Wisconsin. Yep, she's from northern Wisconsin. She played basketball right. at, at Wisconsin with me, and that's where we, we met. Um, she comes from a cheapskate family, just like I do, so <laughs> she gets it. But we'd moved into a nice house in Westlake, Ohio, you know, yeah. the west side of Cleveland, and I was ready to go to like Walmart and get the cheapest futon and everything <laughs> I could get. And she's like, whoa, this is a real house. This is not like a college dorm anymore. We have to have like decent stuff or it's going to look ridiculous. So I kind of like understood that, but I still wanted to make sure that <laughs> everything was kind of reasonably priced, which of course it's not when you buy furniture for a no. nice house. Uh, but the real like come to Jesus moment we had, I think my wife was okay with me like cutting, cutting, cutting corners on some of the furniture and stuff, but she wanted to get curtains because the house didn't have curtains sure. in, in the master. And so we had somebody come over and measure and gave us a quote for like, you know, three big curtain things and it was like a thousand dollars. And I, I flipped. I like that was like I think our first fight. I flipped out. I was like, Annie, this is totally ridiculous. <laughs> this is something we don't need at all. This is frivolous spending. And not only that, you went with the most expensive curtains in all of Cleveland. That's just it's not happening. We're we're not doing any effing curtains. Right. That's it. This is ridiculous. <laughs> spending has gone too far. You're putting and, your foot down. Yeah, I had to put my foot down and we got like a little fight about it. And of course I ended up uh, backtracking and letting her get it, get her curtains. Smart, but still smart move. Yeah, Pick your I, battles, I, I was going to say because it wasn't worth that battle because <laughs> no. that was going to go on for a long no. time. But I still remember for a good two years, I'd walk in our bedroom and I'd look at those curtains. I'd be like, oh, I hate you, curtains. What a waste of money. <laughs> well, we're going to do something that we've never done before, and that's split this into two parts. Joe's been so good and has so many great stories that we're actually going to have part two with Joe Thomas on Club 46, driven by Bridgestone. So we'll see you soon with more from the great Joe Thomas.